welcome to the Articulate Ox podcast. I am your host, Soma79. Thank you so, so, so much for joining me. This episode, I am so excited about. I feel like I say that every time, but this was one of the ones that when I started this podcast, I really wanted to talk to this guy, Steve Levy, one of the founders of Moonshine Music, which for to me was a tremendously influential techno record label which through chains of events totally changed my life, set me on a, a, a course that I was you know, not on and that I was glad that I got on. And he is indirectly irresponsible for some of the most awesome things that have happened in my life, both um, socially, emotionally, artistically, all that stuff. Um, the reason I was, you know, besides all that, the reason that I was really excited to talk to Steve is that Moonshine Music for me one day just kind of disappeared and I stopped seeing albums come out. This was the early 2000s and um, there wasn't, wasn't as much information about it. There weren't a lot of interviews, wasn't a lot of talk about it online and I always wondered what happened to them. So every few years I would Google it, look for information and I still found very little. So he was uh, top of the list of people that I wanted to talk to to kind of, um, you know, thank him for what he had done for me, for his record label has done for me, and, you know, just talk about the history of it and find out more information that I didn't know and just see what his perspective is as, as time has passed. And also just to find out what happened to it. Um, Steve is a really interesting, very intelligent guy. Um, he's had a long career in, in music marketing and in working with artists. And um, it was a very fascinating conversation and meeting him did not disappoint at all. So thank you so much, Steve. I really appreciate you doing this interview and thank you for everything you've done. All right, talk to you, peace. Hey, welcome to the next episode of the Articulate Ox, or the current episode of the Articulate Ox podcast. I am your host, Soma79. I am so super excited for my guest today, Steve Levy, former um, CEO of Moonshine Music, one of the most influential techno label record labels ever. How are you doing today, Steve? Doing good. I don't. I don't know if I'd agree with uh, your um, your summary of Moonshine, but you know, we we we. Definitely has some fun with it. Yeah, we can get into all that. I mean, for me, uh, just to give you a little backstory and why, you know, it's so exciting for me to talk to you is Moonshine really changed uh, my life in a way that they were the first. I was a little late to the dance scene. I, I kind of just put my head down and I graduated college and I, I did it in like three years. And then I popped my head up and I was like, OK, now I need to figure out what social life is like. And the first thing I really found was dance music. And the first label I found was Moonshine. And pretty quickly was that every time I went back to, you know, Newberry Comics or Tower Records around here and I found another album with the Moonshine logo, I knew it was going to be awesome. And it always was. And then from there, I started going to parties and there was a big show called, I think, Wish Upon a Star in, Fitch, in Fitchburg, Mass., the Wallace Civic Center in 2001. And I went there and I met who would become the first love of my life. I met someone who'd become a lifetime best friend and also a person who would become my musical partner for basically executive produced my most recent album. This was 20 years ago. So without that show, I never, I would not be artistically where I'm at. I wouldn't be, you know, emotionally where I'm at without Moonshine. There wouldn't have been me going to that show. So that's well, why this is so important to me. So Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I, I actually remember we did a Moonshine Over America tour show in fitchburg in the yes. in the ice rink that's the one it was on this yeah. TV, this this vhs um that was also the place i saw my very first concert smashing pumpkin siamese dream tour in 1994 so that place right. means a lot to me too yep okay yeah yeah i remember there's there's a scene in uh i think it's in american massive when they were talking when we went in there and and our a and r guy at the time john grauman he said, you know, how cold is it? And he looks and he goes, it's fucking cold. <laughs> you know, what's funny is I I went, I saw Soundgarden play there a few years before that. And it was so hot that night. They had to open up all the doors and basically anybody could come in because it was literally just too hot for to, to have the door shut. So I guess that that room goes both ways. That's funny. Yeah. So, so that was my introduction to raving. I mean, I think when you when you look at when you look at like the the documentary you just mentioned and the one I just I just held up, you're you're looking at exactly people that looked just like me back in those days. And and I was definitely late to the scene. You know, I had the bleach blonde tips, I had all that stuff, I had the baggy UFOs, the kick pants. 
Um, now, but this was towards sort of the end of, of you know, Moonshine. It was around till around 2004, 2005. So I missed a lot of the heyday. Um, you took this from parties that you were throwing <clears throat> in an illegal casino in a fish market to basically touring all around the world. So what what were your ambitions going into this, going into Moonshine? Um, when I started, I mean, we Moonshine originally originally was a warehouse party that my brother and a college buddy of mine, George um, Seferis, started throwing probably in 1989. Um, we were all in in college together at Pepperdine University in Malibu through the mid 80s. Um, and there we, we started throwing parties um, for the kids that went to Pepperdine at a bar called Trankus Bar and Grill. And, and kind of what it all started out was just having a good time, having a party, having a place for people to party. Um, music for me was important. I always, you know, I was always the kid with the cassette tape kind of being the selector at the family parties, even when I was a kid. Um, and I was DJing some of our early stuff. I went back to the UK in 1988 when I graduated college and that was happened to be kind of the summer of love acid house and I was right in the middle of it um went to some of the warehouse raves the illegal acid house parties went to spectrum which was kind of the one of the linchpins of the scene that Paul Oakenfold DJed at um was bought my first Technics turntable um then was collecting vinyl collecting a lot of the music and and left England because the weather sucked and came back to California. My brother was still here. My buddy George was still here and they were still, they were throwing some parties and had moved into, into the city. And, um, I started DJing at the parties with this stack of vinyl that I had. And, and, um, it kind of started from there, but the ambition that at that time I, there was no ambition. It was just that part, throw parties and have a good time. Yeah. I mean, we were making some money, but, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, that wasn't really the important part. Yeah. Promotion is never, is never guaranteed, you know, success when it comes down to throwing on parties. It's like breaking even a lot of times is if you had a good time, that feels like a success. So, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. you, so I'm assuming at this point, the scene over in, in the UK was more developed than, than the, than the scene in the U S am I correct in that assumption? I mean, was there, were you, were you kind of helping bring, introduce people to a new type of, you know, dance music in the U S or was there already kind of a scene in the LA area? There was nothing like acid house. Wasn't a thing. It was like that. Yeah. There was a club scene, but it was actually more kind of velvet rope. Um, you know, your name's not down, you're not coming in type thing. Um, and it, there was kind of a, a little bit of a sea change happening. Um, we were probably, you know, there were a couple of people starting to promote nights with acid house music, but we were probably the first in LA. Um, and I think, you know, we, we definitely, yeah, we definitely were among the, some of the first in, in the, in the whole of the U S yeah, and I, I also noted here that um, you're one of the first dance um, companies to put out DVDs, which is obviously the visuals is such an important part of the entire, you know, rave techno experience. What led you to, to sort of go down that path and see that this was something that there was an opportunity for? I mean, that was, that's, that's a big fast forward. Um, yeah, sorry. 10 years. <laughs> we can get back but, to that later if you want. It's just yeah, no, no, no. But, I mean, it, it was just kind of like, um, you know, the beauty of what we were doing with Moonshine was once with the record label, once we kind of established it was we, we had a real, we had a real link into the UK scene and what was happening. We had an office in London because obviously I'm English. Um, and so anything that was kind of new and exciting that was happening in the UK, which usually happened well before it was going to hit in the U S re with respect to dance music and electronic music, we were in front of and on top of, and, and there were some crews that were beginning to um, become like visual DJs, v, VJs as, as it were. And, and um, we got connected with some people and we were like, hey, I mean, it was the same, like no one had put out DJ mix albums until we did it. And we were like, hey, let's just test it. And, and that was how that happened. 
it's interesting too like the the approach that that you guys took where essentially you're putting the dj out front is something you know now it's it's people go to parties if a celebrity is dj and they don't even know what the person's going to play but back then that was sort of a revolutionary idea that the dj is really the personality and this really struck me in watching you know the the um american massive documentary at the end there was some footage i'd never seen before of uh of frankie bones kiyoki and micro in the back of a limo and it yeah. really struck you that how different like just the way that especially Frankie Bones and Kiyoki, like the different patterns of their voice and just how different these human beings are in a way, it almost struck me as like pro wrestlers. Like these guys are bigger than life and they're unique. And even if people, the criticism is the music all sounds the same, which I think is you know BS, but people say that you look at these guys and they couldn't be any more different. Yeah. I mean, that was a, the, Putting the DJ as the artist was a was really a conscious decision when we did it, and um, and no one at that point had been doing it. There were some compilations that had come out, and there were some compilations that had brand names, but they were you know, and the DJ mixing it was kind of a the, the subline on it, and and we were realizing that we we could feel the groundswell that there was kind of a movement out there, um, that people were seeing or wanted to see the DJs as an artist. So the, the idea of the DJ mix album really put them at the forefront. And yeah, I think we pioneered it hundred percent. So how did something like that work? Was it that you say you were talking to like a micro or a Dave Ralph or someone like that? And is it like, Hey, we want to do an album, just work on a set, find the one you want, you know, get, gather the records, make sure that these people are okay with you using it. And then they just sort of, are they like working in their home studio to assemble something to send to you and remixing it? Or what's the, what's the process like? It's funny you say talking of Dave Ralph, because I talk to Dave Ralph almost every day. So. Really? That Love Parade, <laughs> I know it wasn't a Moonshine album, but that Love yeah. Parade album he put out, and I, I must have listened to that a million times. I picked the CD up yesterday and I felt my heart like skip a beat. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll tell him. Um, so how it started was, um, it was... So there's two levels to it. There's like the legality, like, you know, how do you put together a mix album with a DJ and you've got to license all of the music? Things so, people are still trying to figure out today. To some well, extent. You know, it, it's funny you say that because, and, and you know, something I'll tell you a bit later in the story, remind me to kind of go back to Apple Music and yeah. the Moonshine Music DJ connection. But, um, you know, what we figured out was that, you know, there was a framework for how the creators get paid on a on on an album when it comes out and it's a percentage of the retail price and typically for an artist album particularly in in the 90s uh, in america an artist will get 12 percent of the retail price of the album um and that was their royalty so with compilations it was you would sit there and go okay i'm going to put 10 tracks or 12 tracks on there and then i'm going to prorate that number of tracks over to 12%. So you got 12 tracks, each track gets 1%. Um, there wasn't any room for, for, you know, with that 12%, because typically whenever you'd license the music, the music wanted, the labels we'd license it from wanted 12% or prorated, a, a prorated amount of that 12%. So we said, you know what, we've got room to pay out 15%. And so we, said okay the, the the dj gets three percent as the creator of the mix and then we apply the other 12 percent to the um the royalties that we have to pay to the licensees um so that was that side coming up with that and then the other side of it was we would go to the djs we'd say you know we want you to do a mix album you've got creative control the only limit for your creative control is the tracks that we can legally license to put on your album so give us 20 or 30 tracks that you want to build a mix with and we're going to go out and see what we can clear and then we would come back and usually you know if they gave us 30 we'd probably come back with 20 that we got cleared and then they would either work in our studio at moonshine we had a studio and work with our engineers or work with one of their own engineers or work on their own and deliver us a mix that typically, you know, which is maybe require a little bit of cleaning up here and there and pro tools. And, and that was the process, but the creative control for the mix was a hundred percent with the DJ. The, 
because it would have been ridiculous for us to sit there and go, oh, no, you've got to do it this way. You've got to do it this way. Right. Same down to most of the concepts that, that the DJs, that, you know, our DJ mixes were pretty much led by the DJs. I mean, we had some series of albums on, on Moonshine that we'd created and we would slot some DJs into them. I mean, an example would be like Psychotrance. Mm -hmm. um, we established that series. Then um, a DJ named Defuse was a guy I met out of when we were on tour for Moonshine Over America. Um, funny story was he he picked us up at the airport to to take us to our show, and he's this super likable guy. And he was he was the opening DJ for the night because he worked with a promoter. And he handed me a CD, a CDR of a mix. And um, I took it and I think it sat on top of my TV at home for about four or five months. And finally, at some point, I picked it up and I listened to it. And I was like, oh, this guy's great. And we were like, you know, but how do we launch him? He's He comes out of out of Texas. He's He hasn't done anything really nationally. So we slotted him on, you know, on Psychotrance and built him from there. But typically, someone like Micro, the Micro Tech Mix, that was that was his concept. The artwork was stuff that you know he worked with our designers to create. Yeah, that that too was one of my. Uh, we've referring to this record. Yep, one of my all time favorites. This was one of the first ones that really I, I just played to death. In like, I remember just sitting in my bedroom being like, "What the hell? <laughs> Get me to wherever they're playing this." Um, as I open this, this, this is one thing that I was looking at these these pamphlets because I throw nothing away from back in the day. It you guys were selling cassettes, which I guess because you're big in the '90s, that makes sense. But the idea of a techno cassette to me kind of blows my mind. It feels like the most lo-fi way to listen to like the most hi-fi music. Was that um, was that a big part of your business back in the '90s? Um, I would say twenty-five percent. You know, when when people were still listening to cassettes and using them you, i mean the mid 90s almost every not every car came with a cd player like it probably wasn't until right. like you know late mid 90s that a cd player was not an option so um you know there was definitely a cassette business i i would say probably our split was not the same as like a regular record label playing, you know, selling rock or pop music, but it was probably less. We were probably more CD driven. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's crazy. I, I, you just reminded me about cassettes. I wasn't you know, really. They're, they're forgettable. I, yeah. Or no, I'm hearing there's a, there's, there's a comeback. So they are. I mean, I got a couple like, Eric B and Rakim sitting right here. I was listening to this the other day on cassette. It's the only, actually, the only um, medium I have this on. So rather listen to that than streaming a lot of the times. But that's funny. Um, so one thing I read, I believe, it was an interview that you did with Billboard with your brother uh, years ago, was that you guys were really businessmen that got into the got into the electronic music world as opposed to electronic music producers who decided to be businessmen. So how the actual quote, and that's okay. my quote. Because I was, I've, I've probably used it more, more recently as well. Um, is that you know, we, we, yeah, we were businessmen who, who, went into music. We were not musicians who went into business. And, and um, I think there's, I've, I've seen a lot of disasters happen with the latter. I don't know that necessarily. I mean, calling myself a businessman might have been a stretch in the '90s. I like to think I might have a little bit more knowledge nowadays, but. Um, it might have been compared to the people around you. What's that? Might have been compared to the people around you. You know that you were the most businessman of them. Yeah, I mean, it, it. I I think it was, and even with you know, you talked about promoting clubs and breaking even, and I I never considered that um, a success. Like, I you know, I I came out of school. I. I I've always been kind of entrepreneurial, even, you know, when I was in college and earlier, like even just like doing shit, like detailing cars to make money and shit like that. So I've always been driven by like, I got to make some money from it. And, and I actually was a fairly successful promoter, pretty young. Um, but then I also had like a couple of big duds where, I mean, there was, there was one party I did, which was really, 
the reason I got out of promoting. I, I lost a, a ton of money on one night because it rained, which in LA, you know, does yeah. cause parties not to happen. And and I was like, I really don't want to fucking do this for the rest of my life. And and that was when I decided I got to kind of pull back from that. Took a breather. At the time I was getting into some graphic design, I bought myself a Apple Mac two. And I was doing flyer design for other parties. And, and that was when when the moonshine label thing started. So um, I think the money that I lost on that one night was the same amount that was invested in launching moonshine. And it was definitely um, a better a better value proposition. So, and better so investment. when you go from throwing parties in like the local LA area to, to launching a label that has an, like an international reach, you know, it'll grow to have an international reach. I guess it starts with one if you're, you know, you're also based out of London. What, um, what are those steps? Like, how do you, how do you start getting the, the word about moonshine out from outside the, the West Hollywood area? Um, I mean, it started my original partner in moonshine was a guy who had been working, he, you know, he was also the same age. We were early 20s. He was someone I knew from the club scene, and he had actually been working um, at Capitol Records. So he had a vague understanding of, of the music business, whereas my part of it initially was that I knew the music, the electronic music, and I had the connections um, because a lot of a lot of kind of UK guys and guys had come through some of my clubs. I had a club called Truth here for a couple of years in LA that was kind of a real a real linchpin of the original like rave scene here. And so I I knew Paul Oakenfold through that. I knew some other UK guys like Trevor Fung, and and when we started the original version of Moonshine. I reached out to them and they connected with me with people in the scene in the UK and we had kind of a direct line and we were able to license music that no one else was really getting their arms around. And because we were running one of the kind of hottest, or I was running one of the hottest clubs in LA with the most progressive music. I, I, and I was DJing. I also knew the music. So, you know, it was absolutely legitimate. And, um, that that was kind of how we were able to do it and then as far as like figuring out how to get the word out um you know it was just kind of it was we just experimented and you know we were we were there we started when kind of the internet started getting started and and um we had a friend my brother and i um who buddy of ours who we used to go out with all the time and he disappeared and i'm talking about like probably 93 and and then suddenly he reappeared his name was charles and he's like guys i found this thing it's called the internet and you laugh right yeah, because you I, probably don't know life without it right and well it's funny because i didn't have the internet until 97 so i i remember 94 i would have been like what <laughs> yeah and he was like you know i fit this thing called the internet and and we're like oh yeah what's that and he's like and and they, there's these the things series of tubes. <laughs> no, it's just like there's these things called websites, and and you they're like catalogs online, and and then there's these boards. You should check out these boards, like out dot. You know, there was like out dot raves, and and he's like, and I convinced AT and T to give me a T one line into my apartment, and I've been building websites, and I'm like, what the fuck is all of that? You know, and he's like, I want to build you a website, and we said sure. So we were literally one of the first labels to actually have a website because it was like 94, I think it's, it was yeah, when you guys, that's, yeah, that's like pretty 90. crazy. And, and what Charles did was he, and the reason he wanted to build us a website was because he wanted to take the website and he took it to Capitol records and showed them it. And they built, they contracted him to build the first like major label website, which is the Megadeth website. <laughs> <Damn> and, <laughs> and, and, um, and, and it was funny because I remember he had gone into the meeting and he called us up and he's like, they want me to build the website. What, what do you think I should charge them? They asked me how much it would cost. And we were like, well, you know, it's freaking major, major labels. Like you could probably get a hundred grand, but ask for 90. It sounds better. Yeah. Sounds, sounds like you really put a lot of thought into it. <laughs> yeah. And they agreed to it. And, and he launched a business that, you know, became very successful 
in in kind of web development way back when but um so we we leveraged that we leveraged the email i mean prior we we've always been you know from my club promoting days the 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 your most valuable asset as a club promoter was your email, was your not your emails, your mailing list. Right. I and mean, you know, I always used to have like, you know, pretty young girls wandering around with clipboards taking everyone's name and address. And that that was how I was successful as a club promoter. And you kind of just leveraged the same kind of marketing. And then as a promoter, we're always coming up with, you know, cool new marketing ideas and campaigns and names and brands and all that kind of stuff. And it just rolled into it. And, um, and also, you know, I had good people join Moonshine, come work for us and, 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 but we were really making up a lot of it as we went. Yeah. And it seems like you were a few steps ahead of the game too, because you said there were no websites back then. You were really, there wasn't a whole lot of middlemen between you and the, the, the customer, which I think you see a lot in, in major label. There's a lot of middlemen between the customer and the artist, and there's a lot of people filtering it. But when you take those people out and you have more control over, you know, giving the people what they want, it gives you a ton of power. You know? Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was just purely because we, you know, we were authentic. We came from the scene. We weren't someone who came in and go, oh, what's this electronic music stuff? We need to like jack into it. We we were part of it. So I think, you know, people like you, you smell that, you know, yeah. you smell whether or not we're authentic. And and by the same token, we, you know, we were doing a lot of stuff in the background just to to pull the whole thing along as well, grow it. Um, a lot of like guys that kind of worked with me on my club spread around the country and started promoting in other cities. So that was happening. Um, you know, fast forwarding a little bit like 97, we, we were trying to um, figure out how to tour our artists and, and tour the moonshine brand. And, and we couldn't get arrested with the current booking agencies that were around. And, and I, I, got connected with this guy, Paul Morris, who had an agency called AM only. And he was kind of like a young guy he had a, a store in, in uh, the East village called breakbeat science. That was yep. a, uh, it was drum and bass specialty store. His partner was Dara um, and diesel boy, I think was involved in, and Paul, another English guy. Um, I knew him. I'd met him kind of a couple of years earlier because he, one of his best friends growing up was a guy by the name of Richard Russell who ran XL recordings and, yeah. and, and I worked with XL prodigy. Right. And, and um, anyway, Paul started this, this booking agency and, and I worked with him and his artists and we kind of fed each other. Like if I sign an artist, I'd say, Oh, you've got to go work with Paul. And if he signed an artist, you say, you've got to go work with Steve and, we put together this kind of very like limited circuit of promoters that he was working with around the country for the first moonshine over America tour. And that tour was like the first year was like 14 dates and we flew it. And then it grew for the next five years to like close to 30 dates. We were on a rock and roll tour bus. We, we were doing some shows in some markets with 25,000 people showing up and, um, you know, but we built that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't there. So, but we did it kind of out of necessity and, and DIY. You sort of, you sort of inferred this a little bit, but you really have to take a counterculture grassroots approach with that because there isn't, you're not going to run an ad on television for a show like this. You're not going to run an ad in like, you know, the local newspaper or anything like that. You have to somehow get the word out to, to the right people and get them at this place. And, and I thought you show on the, the American Massive, they showed one of the cut scenes that like they're at a place where there was no one there, where it was like these same artists playing in front of 25,000 people at one city. And then sometimes you show up and there's no one there. And I've been to shows like that where you're just like, where is everybody that was here last week? And it, it's kind of tough to figure that out. But were there a lot of growing pains in terms of touring? Like, like I imagine trying to to book a um, a college hockey rink in, in Fitchburg, Massachusetts from the other side of the country means that you've gone through a lot of other options. Like, what was that like? Well, no, we, that was, that was kind of Paul's job and I am only. And at that point, um, I think, you know, Paul, Paul was like, what year was that? Was that like 
two, you said 2001, right? The one I was at was at 2001, but I know the one on right. the over on the American Massive was I think 99 or 2000. Uh, no, if it was American Massive, it would have been 2001. Oh, maybe. So maybe the yeah. one I watched that was that because it looks so familiar. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. you know, everybody looks. No, because I think that was the only because previously in Boston we we always played Avalon on a weeknight. I went to a lot of those shows. Yeah. So so um. I and and so we did that Fitchburg one. I mean, you know, the as as kind of first of all, we had data on like where we were selling records because that you know that was actually sound scanned, and every week we would know what markets were selling records, how many records were selling a week. So and selling through the website, you know, you're shipping them to too. That's where you're yeah, a little ahead of the game. That that was I would say less of a, a data point for us but you know we had some we we knew where there were markets where and it was interesting because we would go into markets so we would be telling the promoter look we sell shit tons of records here and they'd be like really and we're like yeah and and when we would do like a, you know a tuesday night show in in like pittsburgh um with carl cox you know it would be ramped. It would be five, 600 people in a club that only held 400 and, you know, they'd be begging for more at two o'clock right. in the morning. Um, but, you know, the promoter was usually like, well, I don't believe it. Cause we didn't, none, none of these shows were pre-sell tickets or anything like that at the time. It was like, you're sitting there waiting for people to show up. Yeah. It was a challenge to buy tickets back in the day. Like I, I, I pulled out some of my old flyers. So this is one of the ones that a similar show from the Wallace civic center. And there's a whole dissertation on the back of like how to buy tickets, how not to yeah, buy yeah. them, who you can yeah. call, like then all the directions and the address will be released the week before. It's like the we, there's a picture of the hockey rink, so that doesn't make it very easy. <laughs> like, but yeah. like there was a big pain. Like you, it was hard to get tickets ahead of time for a lot of these shows. Like I remember having to drive to Boston to get tickets for a show in Springfield, and that was the only place I could buy them. Like that makes a lot of sense, but yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, it it was funny because uh, I mean, you probably know I went into Insomniac um, as head of marketing a few years ago, and there was still a little bit of a mindset in there of like selling tickets through record stores. You know, it was you know because that's how it was done. Right. You know, it was it was it was it was kind of funny. It, they had not kind of got their head around like. Well, I went in there and I'm like, you're an e-commerce business. Right. Like, you know, and it was like, oh yeah, you're right. You know, yeah. do it online. You can put all these service charges on and people won't, people have no one to yell to, you know, they can just yell at themselves about it. Yeah. Right. Um, so another thing I, I noticed, I'm a, I, there's a lot, Herb Magazine, one of my favorite magazines of all time, which recently now is planning some, is working on some sort of a comeback. I was chatting with someone a little bit online about it. Um, you see your logo a lot um, in in this magazine, a lot of ads, a lot of different stuff. Did you guys have a pretty close relationship with Herb and did Herb help you guys grow to some degree or? Yeah, so funny story. So Raymond Roker, who is who is the founder of Herb, um, I was throwing a party. I mean, it was probably like 91, 92. And it was a party I did at this uh, at, um a roller rink was it a roller rink yeah i think it was a roller rink in kind of like downtown la and i was up on stage with the dj and i was chatting this guy came up to me and he's like my name's raymond and i got i've just launched this magazine it's called herb magazine he handed me the first issue and it was um it was it was printed on newsprint and he's like you know i really really love you to check this out and and i remember i checked it out and I was reading it and uh, you probably don't remember this, but it's kind of a long time ago. Magazines in America always used to like start an article at the front and then finish them at the back. Mm -hmm. It was like this weird thing, like coming from England where there was a big magazine culture. And I, I always been a big magazine hound. Yeah. I never understood that. And, and the first thing I, I remember, the first thing I said to him when he, he called me up and he was asking, you know, what I thought I was like, well, why do you do that? And he's like, well, because everyone does that. All the big magazines do that. And I go, well, it, it's so annoying and, right. and it makes no sense. And literally that issue onwards, he stopped doing that. And and um, so, you know, I had a thank you, Raymond <laughs> and 
and he you know he was a big supporter of kind of when I was still there was still a club scene I was still doing clubs but when we launched Moonshine one of the, the things that we did was we made a real conscious effort to spend a lot of money on marketing where we knew that our audience was and our audience was with the zines and herb was one kind of one of the one of the kind of big ones particularly on the west coast um and if you look back at that time pretty anything pretty much any magazine that was predominantly electronic music we owned the back page and we did that constant we did that kind of consciously and constantly um so you know we supported them. They supported us. Um, and that's probably and, the branding that got me to be honest with you. Cause I, I do remember that herb was landing on my radar before techno was in general. So it's probably from me reading herb and seeing your logo over and over again, that got me to go to the store and buy that and started me on my whole journey. Yeah. Great. I mean, this is one of my I mean, favorite then, herbs, one of my favorite magazines of all time. I wish I'm glad they're trying to do something again. But. And then, um, you know, behind you, you got BPM. I mean, I don't, I don't yep. know if you know, I mean, that, that was a coincidence. I know that's usually facing the other way because the public enemy one on the other side. And I was like, oh, yeah, same guy. Yeah. So we, you know, we ended up when we launched DJMixed.com. Um, we were we were kind of scratching our head. We were like, well, we need a couple. We need content and we need ad sales. And we knew David Island, who was one of the founders of BPM. And also we used to support them. We used to spend a lot of money advertising with them. And we were kind of like, you know, he was he was a very aggressive publisher in making sure we were always advertising with him. We were like, "You interested in selling the magazine and 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 joining what we're doing here?" And that's how we got involved with that. So I have another. I have an interesting piece of one of a kind moonshine related history here that I'll share with you related to Herb. So back to that story I told you before about the first time I went to that show. Um, I think it was Wish Upon a Star in Fitchburg in two thousand one. Um, Christopher Lawrence was uh, one of the DJs there and uh, I was there with a family member and they we both had t-shirts and it had listed all the DJs in the back and one of them was Christopher Lawrence so smash cut to a year or so forward uh, the, the family member that I went with is now living in LA and they're at the post office and they're wearing the t-shirt and they hear a British woman behind them going Christopher that's your name Christopher that's your name or something like that and he turns around and it's Christopher Lawrence and his wife and, yeah. and he was like, oh, Australian, wow. Australian, actually. So. Okay, okay yeah. cool. And so he was like, oh, you know, we told him, like, you know, we're fans, my brother especially, he's a big fan. And he got him to sign a postal slip for me, so it's the post office. So then this family member is reading Herb Magazine, and they, they come upon this article with Christopher Lawrence. It's kind of tough to see with a reflection. But yeah, <laughs> um, they talk to his wife here, and it says The Secret Life of Christopher Lawrence, and she says... Um, his favorite thing to do to go to the post office to collect his daily records, his daily deluge of proud of promo records. It's like Christmas for him every day. So this person got me this article framed with the signed postal slip. So it's an autograph of Christopher Lawrence from the place that is, according to him, his favorite place to go. So That's funny. I've been carrying I, this around. I'll tell you another years. great Christopher Lawrence autograph story. Yeah. Um, on Moonshine Over America, I, I can't remember where. Um, Christopher had just put out an album with us and a kid came up to him with a CDR of a burn of the album. And this was when CDRs were becoming a problem for us. Right. And he comes up and he goes, Hey, Christopher, can, can we sign this? This is a CDR of your, and Christopher was just like, fuck no. Like, you know, go out and buy the fucking yeah, record. I bought mine. <laughs> yeah. It was that, it was probably that album, but it, it was, album. it was, uh, Yes, it, it, that was a funny story. So it? that's an interesting transition, too, because um, so you guys, one of the reasons I wanted you on here in the, to talk to you is, is that because when you guys sort of disappeared, I noticed and, you know, I'm across the country the you know, Internet isn't as strong as it was. And I remember Googling a lot trying to figure out what really happened to Moonshine Music, because it felt like one day they were just suddenly gone. And there was very few information. There's a timeline article that pops up on Billboard, um, I think. And then there's that interview you guys did with Billboard. But there isn't a whole lot of press about it. So I just I've been wondering for years, what was it that really led to the end of, of Moonshine? And was it as sudden as it felt like to someone like myself? I mean, it was basically the curse of Billboard. Whenever Billboard does a profile on a label, they die. Um, really? No. <laughs> 
um it's a it's a long it, it so no it wasn't sudden um although it happened fast if that makes sense yeah. um and probably faster than we all saw it coming look the it wasn't you know it wasn't just us it was like the whole the whole physical um record business took a kick in the nuts around 2002 2003 and it and it you know a lot of people were like oh it was it was streaming it was downward it wasn't streaming it was downloads it was uh i would argue partially um piracy from you know the cdrs mm-hmm. um and then it really the the, the killer for the music business uh, as a whole was um the fact that retail collapsed um right and and you know that that retail collapse really started with september 11th mm-hmm. and i remember dave or day who was on our label who yep. was kind of our house engineer and, and and you know a good friend of mine also we whose name with. i just found out i've been saying wrong for 20 years i thought it was odd so yeah, <laughs> it was it's all day um about i want to say like 10 till 7 in the morning no it's 10 till 6 in the morning uh called me and my phone rang and i picked up the phone i'm like you know what's going on it was dave and he's like switch the tv on and and i was like i'm thinking oh there's something about rave on tv on the news yeah. or something switch the tv on and there's you know the the twin towers and the planes smashed into them and and the crazy story is that dave's sister-in-law who was married to the woman who was married to his um his brother um worked for the one of the stockbrokers that had two floors I, i'm trying to remember the name of the company and she she lived on the west coast and she was on a conference call when the first plane hit and kind of basically went through the conference room that she was on wow. a conference call with and so obviously he he gets the call i get the call we're looking at this we're you know we're looking at this whole disaster going on and you know not not to kind of downplay what a disaster was i remember sitting looking at my wife and and saying this is going to have such a bigger effect than just those buildings going down and these people dying this is this is you know this is going to be much bigger than that and and really what what it did was it it crippled the u.s economy but kind of did it in slow motion because immediately afterwards you're in the northeast you probably remember like all your shopping malls were you know shut down people evacuated there were bomb scares there were threats and this this went on for like that whole q3 q4 of that year and and what and the northeast is the biggest retail market in the country and Q3 and Q4 is when 40% of annual sales are made. And so the knock-on effect was, especially for record retail, was like a bunch of chains went bankrupt. And in with respect, and it wasn't just in music. You know, there were there there were also you know fashion chains and stuff like that that also suffered bankruptcy in the next couple of over the course of the next couple of years. And the trouble with the record business is that the music business CDs was sale and return. So if if a retailer didn't sell our CD, they could send it back to us, and we would have to pay them the money back. And and the cash flow of the business is that you know we worked with a distributor who sold to the major chains. Um, we sold you know I think we sold the CDs for like nine bucks, and then they got they retail for like fifteen or something. What happened when? Um, was that and i remember that morning we had just shipped one of our biggest albums ever we had a mix album with mix master mike of the beastie boys uh is it and, spin cycle right here exactly i was gonna and, bring this up too because i was curious how that happened and we had shipped something like fifty thousand units which was like one of our biggest ship outs and mike was supposed to be on mtv that morning to promote the album Obviously, that didn't happen. And then the other album we shipped, Microtech Mix Number Two, which was also a huge album for the Northeast. Um, so those, you know, obviously those albums failed. Um, and 
the knock-on effects. And then what happened was when all the retailers went bankrupt, they were all bought out, their assets were bought out of bankruptcy. And not a lot of people understand this. When the one of the reasons that you know some of the the hedge funds and and the private equity groups that bought these these assets out of bankruptcy the value of them was like every single cd that was sitting in the warehouse in warehouse records or in newberry comics or whatever was worth eight bucks because they got to ship them back to the distributor who then shipped it back to credited the the um label so basically what happened to us was we were rolling along, we had a bunch of sales. And then a year and a half later, we suddenly get a bill over the, you know, over the course of a few months, a bunch of the different chains had, had been bought out of bankruptcy. And then we get all the returns. And so, you know, whereas we were probably, you know, doing like, you know, anywhere from half a million to a million dollars a month in sales, suddenly we weren't getting paid for those sales because we had to apply a credit from stuff that we'd sold two years earlier and it wasn't just us i mean we were i think 0.11 percent of market share for the whole record business you know when we were at our peak that was why all the major labels almost failed they fired everyone they stopped making cds and that's what fucked the music business and we as a privately held independent company we just couldn't weather it and 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 so you know we went from having like 35 people working for us and having to make very difficult decisions to let people go and we probably should have done it a lot faster than we did and maybe but you know the the we never never shut down the company never shut down like we just stopped selling cds and you know the catalog has been out there and you can still listen to moonshine stuff not the not the mix albums but you can still listen to moonshine stuff on spotify and everything but and and then for me personally i just i lost interest mm-hmm. it was you know it was a pretty devastating time and 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 we were fortunate in that we had some other interest in other stuff that we were able to kind of like step away um we had BPM and and we were growing a publishing company at the time. And, you know, maybe to my detriment, maybe I should have stayed in it and try to figure out, you know, where was the music going? Um, But I just lost interest and I went and pursued other interests. I was big into motorsports. I got involved in a bunch of stuff around that for several years, managing some race drivers and and stuff like that. But um, it wasn't quick. You know, it wasn't like overnight. It, it yeah. was a, a process, but that's what happened. It's funny for me. So I was very into that, that, that music all those years when it sort of went away with Moonshine, I sort of drifted away and I got way back into hip hop again. And then I became a performer. I used to do shows around Boston, but then hip hop fell off that same cliff around 2006 or seven, where it was just like, oh, there's way too much product out there. It's rappers trying to sell to other rappers and the scene just fell off a cliff and a lot of artists disappeared and never came back. But there was another thing that happened, which which is also kind of a contributing factor for for us. Um, and again, I, I and it was you know our current president, who I must say I do like. I mean, some people don't, but I do. I think I like him better than the last one. <laughs> um, at the, you know, and I voted for him despite the fact that he launched the anti rave act in two thousand. Right. I actually found and, a letter. I got. I wrote a letter to to um to uh Kerry the the governor the senator from Massachusetts who John Kerry ran for president I read a letter to him about that and I actually got one in response that I couldn't find today but I, I wrote him pissed off about the rave act and they actually wrote so, that so so you know there was also that happened and and two that was 2001 ish and I remember yeah. when we did moonshine over America and th- this too if you can find it is a great article that talks about a lot of that stuff well all the different arrests during the period how they tried to enact the crack house law it's yeah. essentially treat yeah. you know raves like crack house this is a really good article article if you can track it down um so it's yeah yeah so 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 what also happened was was like the rave scene because i remember 2000 2000 moonshine over america was like this crazy banner year we you know for me it was great because i got to go do a lap of america you know two of us so really got to kind of connect with what was going on look like a blast too check out that documentary it's floating around youtube or 
Yeah, it's it's it, yeah, it's actually on YouTube. Yeah, or um, send you a dollar ninety nine on by two thousand. You can get a VHS in it. According to one of the flyers, they fell out of one of these. <laughs> good luck. Yeah. Um. So, you know what also happened was two thousand. It was rocking. I remember going, you know, going around and doing the same lap in two thousand one when all of this was happening, and and um and it was just a different kind of feeling out there and, and we were like you know this is this is really getting impacted and essentially also what happened was there was this big flip from rave music in clubs to the whole kind of it there was there was a switch to open format and bottle service and so that killed the yeah. the the live side of rave music at the same time as when the actual um the physical record market was going away and there was a real drought but a lot of the the booking agents that were solely focused on the us i mean donnie went underground Don, disco donnie who was you know the focus of yep. the anti-rave act and these crack crack house stuff that rise I mean, documentary you know, i think it was again called. another guy i talked to very regularly still talk to him wow. it was funny because he posted a, a thing um in stories i think even it was even for abby not for abby w for sunset music festival about a week ago with biden like a biden head in it and i was like i, I dm'd him and i'm like i don't think any of the kids are really going to get the inside joke here yeah. you know? <laughs> so, know and he's like you're right yeah but um but you know that was also that happened as well and i remember you know we published bpm magazine i remember around 2006 2007 uh because we you know we were really just covering like open format we we covered the rise of guys like am and 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 aoki when he was open format and and mark ronson and stuff like that because that was what was going on in the club scene here in la and you know around the country but and vegas as well there was the kind of the 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 rising of the club scene in vegas but it wasn't electronic music but i remember rob seamus who was the editor of bpm kind of coming to me probably around 2007 he's like you know pasquale's throwing some shows again out in san bernardino and it's like a rave scene like really kind of popping back up and there's all these kids wearing neon and blah blah blah. and i'm like well we should cover it and he's like no it's just not cool and i'm like no, no, no we should cover it and anyway we didn't back then um but um it there was a drought it went away you know the whole thing went away for about six seven years i think the other side of that is that the clubs didn't want ravers in the clubs because they didn't drink yeah and when the bottle service and hip-hop and open format and thing kind of kicked up there was no reason to have a rave dj in the room and a bunch of ravers show up on a you know on a thursday night yeah. and that started happening around you know 2003 ish and um and was definitely the death of it. it you know it wasn't it went away until you know started bubbling here in la 2007 2008 you know hard started throwing their parties and in in downtown la and the the kind of insomniac parties started getting bigger and then 0809 EDC at the Coliseum um, and uh, uh, the sports arena here in LA started getting you know some momentum and obviously that got killed in 2010 when the girl died there and I actually went to that show yeah that, that's, um, that's how fast thing that that can happen that was a rumor happened in our scene as well I don't know if it was true or not but yeah I mean and but then EDM blew up you right. know but there was a there was a break. There was you know six seven years where like electronic music couldn't get arrested. Yep. Um, so I don't want to eat up too much of your time, but I had a few other um, while I have you, I have a few other releases that you guys put out that I was hoping you might have some thoughts on. Um, this one in particular, Kiyoki Jealousy, was a huge one for me. I remember seeing him at Lupo's um and it, it was like a pretty half bold show it was right around the time this came out and i just absolutely loved it and one thing that really interests me in looking through the liner notes in here is he doesn't think is the part where he thanks people is pretty short but he thanks both you and your brother for your support and patience and also thanks moonshine for support and patience so what i'm that makes me sound like there's some sort of story here where you had to be pretty patient about this album is that correct 
I mean, you had to be patient just working with Kiyoki. I mean, seems he, like a uh, fascinating dude. You know what? He 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 is. I mean, I haven't spoken to him in probably fifteen years, maybe longer. Um, he was an. He's he was a brilliant guy, super charming, um, and he was a you know a creative genius he was he was absolutely a pioneer he was the first superstar dj at least in america 100 percent um you know i i knew him all the way back to when he was djing disco 2000 at limelight um he his first mix album went out on um as a journeys by dj in the uk which we then we released it here and that was kind of my beginning of my relationship with him and and we worked very closely with him we put out probably five mix albums and then we put out two artist albums and then two ego remix trip albums. would be the other yeah. one yeah which i think one of these songs that even ended up on the simpsons i think at some point i believe that happened. yeah i mean a, a lot of our stuff got licensed but but you know and his you know, his only problem was that, you know, he cause he just, you know, in the end, he just kind of succumbed to the indulgences that, you know, come around when you're in his position. And and it, it sucked because, you know, talk about like a guy that had just the potential, he, he, he could still right. be doing it. I mean, look, I work with, I released Carl's albums, Carl Cox's albums in, in the 90s when, and we sold more albums here in America than he ever sold anywhere else. Um, Carl's still doing it today at the tender age of 60, you know, and, and at the forefront, at the top of it. And there, there would, you know, Paul Oakenfold's still out there. Right. There's no reason why Kiyoki couldn't have been that guy other than, you know, his own, you know, he was his own worst enemy. And then, you know, with respect to your question, yeah, we supported him a lot. And then, yeah. All of the people at Moonshine supported him a lot. And, you know, but by the same token, we sold a lot of records with him, but he right. also made a lot of money. Yeah. And it is interesting, too. I, I referenced before that interview in the back of the, um, like the car with um, Micro and, and Kiyoki and Frankie Bones. He comes off, I thought he came off really well spoken. And he's like, you could tell that he was very thoughtful in a lot of what he said. But also, you know, we don't have to dig up the history. There's some, you know, sorted history of him over the years. And, um, you can, he seems like just that pure artist where it's like, you got to let him be who he's going to be. And, you know, it's going to be for better or for worse. It seems like somebody you're not going to have a whole lot of control over. Amazingly intelligent, super charming when, you know, when he wasn't fucked up, just the best guy to hang out with. I mean, I toured Asia with him. I, I, you know, I did a lot of shit with him and, you know, when he, when he was good, he was amazing. And when he wasn't, he was he yeah. he was just a pain in the ass to be around. And the trouble was, what happened was, the scene started getting professional. You know, I, I use the quote unquote unquote professional right. in in kind of the late '90s. And as much as he was a you know he was a draw, he just started not showing up and being a pain in the ass. And the trouble was, he wasn't the only one out there then. You know, in 94, 95, he was like the only guy that was literally getting flown around the country. But, you know, every all these promoters were putting up good money, uh, risking their own livelihoods. And, you know, he would not show up. Hard I mean, sin of, of I was just telling a story. I was literally telling a story. I was like, literally, because we, you know, we had to shepherd him on Moonshine Over America. And I remember we were, I think we were leaving Toronto or something. And I literally, he was behind me on the gangway going onto the airplane. And I'm like, okay, we got him on the plane. Thank fucking God. And I sit down and he's disappeared. And it's, and they're going over to, they're over to the speaker. They're going, would Mr. Frank, calling Mr. Franconi, calling Mr. Franconi. And he'd managed to uh. fuck off. And so, you know, yeah. Anyway, I mean, yeah. look, he look, he he was creatively fantastic. And also, you know, as a DJ, when he was on, absolutely fucking magical. 
absolutely magical you know could weave just you know the most amazing sets together when he was when he was on just brilliant all right let me ask about one more this one i was super curious about rock rada uh huge, i'm a huge hip-hop fan i got the scratch poster back there you might have noticed like um obviously rock rate is no longer with us r.i.p rock rate but um this album's amazing um executioners to me were a huge deal what was putting this together like and, and did you have ambitions for going further into turntablism um or was or hip-hop in general or was this was that, that that was a so that was a moonshine album because i know yeah. we did a couple of other <clears throat> turntablist records with mix mag um yep i remember those um I think that was kind of a follow-on from from the Mixmaster Mike one. Um, with Mike, it was like you know, it was just a relationship thing. It was like his his A and R, my A and R guy John John Grauman was some I I think somehow got connected with Mike's I think wife at the time, and we just got kind of we used to hang out with them a bit and them and and then they got comfortable with us because and and then the idea of doing a record kind of got floated and then the i mean the record did well despite the yeah. the launch and the timing obviously you know mixed master mike the beastie boys um and then i think we wanted to explore it a bit more um i honestly personally was not that involved with that record so um and I think it was kind of a little bit experimental for John Grauman, who was the A&R guy at the time. Um, I don't believe it did that great. Um, and, um, you know, it was one of those things where, yeah, we were trying to branch out and see see what else we could do. Right. Mixmaster Mike, he's one of those guys that pops up everywhere. A few years, I think, after that, he was, my friend was working at WBCN in Boston and he was driving the promotion van. He was driving Mixmaster Mike around and he's like, I was driving Mixmaster Mike around all night. I got you some free tickets to go see him play. I'm like, where is he playing? He's like, TD Bank Garden. I'm like, that is where the Celtics play. And he's like, he's opening for Guns N' Roses. And I was like, okay, this I got to see. So this was just Axel and Buckethead, none of the original guys. And we go there and Mixmaster Mike goes on about an hour and a half late. And it's just him up there playing to a whole stadium full of angry Guns N' Roses fans. And it goes about as well as you would think. And then Axel doesn't go on for like till I, the rumor was he wouldn't go on till the hockey game he was watching was over. And they had to extend the trains in Boston that night. But um, I got to see Mixmaster Mike put a, you know, an entire oh, room full of confused he, people. He's a great guy. Had a lot of fun working with him. Um, super humble, you know, given, you know, his background and his talent and everything. Just, just a, a wonderful guy to deal with and work with. And one day, and it's honestly like a privilege and an honor to work with him. Yeah. One day, and like I went back in my early Instagram days when I had like 200 followers, he randomly liked like five of my pictures out of nowhere. And I was just spent the next week. I'm like, how did that happen? Like, like, like where did he? Because he is really, because the Beastie Boys to me, there's almost no one bigger. And he is royalty. Like, you know, he is. Yeah. He's amazing. I mean, same. Same. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, and it was funny because I had, I had the kind of honor and, and and pleasure to have a few moments like that in my career with Moonshine. And um, one of them was, you know, Kiyoki was really became really good friends with Daniel Ash and and um, Love and Rockets Seventh Dream of Teenage Heaven was like my summer album of like high school of my senior year of high school. And, and then, you know, 15 years later, I'm sitting across my desk and I've got Daniel talking about, hey, I want to release some records on your label. And I'm like, you know, if I told you know, teenage me that this was going to happen. Yeah, I would have gone. Yeah, right. Yeah. I just so. had one of those moments where um, I quit rapping around 2009. because I was sitting in traffic in Boston and I heard this song by Percy P, this rapper, and I felt so outclassed by him as a as a rapper. I'm like, I can't do this anymore. I'm a fraud. And just actually right now, I'm working on a song with Percy P. Now it's been like 13 years and it's like I've come full circle. I'm like, I'm no longer scared of this man. And now we're working together. And it's like almost nothing feels better than that, you know? Yeah, you know, that's part of, you've just got to keep plugging away. That's all. You know? Yep. And so uh, before we go, you, um, I looked you up online. You have something you're working on now. I want to give you a chance to, to mention that if, if that's of any interest to you. I, I, my, 
my kind of day job at the moment is I, I got pulled back into, into a, being a promoter essentially. And I, I, I'm kind of like a hired gun CMO for large events, working on Imagine Festival down in, down in Georgia, which is an amazing show. Um, I'm working on a platform called Amplified and then, um, you know, I'll say it here, there is, um, potentially a revival of moonshine in, in, oh. in another form coming and, uh, we'll just leave it at that. I'll so. be excited to give me, that gives me, now that you answered my my past questions of moonshine that I've been Googling for years, you've now given me a new one to start Googling from this day forward. So I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. You know, you will listen, you follow me on Instagram, so you'll, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll see what it's all about. I'm, yeah. If, if, if everything lines up right, we'll be, um, you know, we'll be talking in three or four months time. That's awesome. Well, I'll look forward to hearing that. And I thank you so much for doing this. I mean, this really like when I first started to come up with this idea of a podcast, I came up with a list of people that like I just wanted to talk to that I thought would have interesting stories that fills in holes in, in my my story myself. And you were top of that list. So this means a lot to me that you did this. And I really well, appreciate, I appreciate that. And, and like I said, to you earlier, I think in our communication, you know, every once in a while, it's it's fun to uh, talk about the old times. And and again, I you know, I I what you said to me about how Moonshine was a part of your your kind of early music life. That I love hearing that, and that kind of really really makes it all worth it. Awesome. Well, it's funny. I posted um, the Kiyoki Jealousy album on my story the other day. I was listening to it and I got more. I post a lot of stuff that I listen to just to get conversations going and find fans that like the same stuff. I got more response to that album than I, I thought I ever would. People I never thought of were like, oh, my God, that was my jam. And you're like, there are still are those fans out there that that miss the stuff and crave it. And, um, you know, I'm well, glad that, you guys that, really I mean, did. that album, you know, I would. I mean, I think we sold a couple of hundred thousand albums. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a wow. small release. I guess, yeah, that is, that is, that is pretty big. Yeah. And that was towards the, you know, when the, the stale started to dip, that was like early 2000s. That's nothing to sneeze at at all. You know? Yeah. I mean, it, he sold probably combined across everything, you know, close to a million albums. Um, and, you know, that's, um, you know, that's that's where part you know when when we talk about him we're just like you know there's there's that should have should have taken he should be still at the forefront right but, you know that's that's the music business it is uh, yeah. but, it, but it's it, it is i i kind of watch i i don't run the moonshine youtube channel anymore but i for some reason i'm still connected as an admin so whenever comments get posted on there and, and the majority of the comments are for kiyoki or cirrus and and it's exactly what you said. Like people that I remember that yeah. record. Yeah. Can't believe I didn't get a chance to talk about them. But yeah, Cirrus was a big deal too. I know they were a big artist on your label. So definitely check them out as well. No, they were great. They were great yeah. guy. Yeah. So cool. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Steve. This has been an absolute pleasure. And um, I really appreciate it. All right, Tim. Appreciate it too. Yeah. Thank you.